and on the church page. So if you're looking for it, you will find it. As soon as we're done with this, I'll put it on the uh, church page tonight. Uh, but uh, we do have some special requests and prayer. I've already been um, asked about or told about one tonight uh, coming in the door. And uh, we've got some that we've heard as well. Of course, you're watching in the news and everything going around in the world that we're in. Uh, and so we're going to save that to the end of the service. So tonight, if you would uh, turn to Revelation, we'll get right back into our study, Revelation. And we're in chapter number two, wrapping up chapter number two and trying to get through chapter number three tonight. Uh, and uh, you'll learn with me the longer you hear me teach. I'm not somebody that likes to drag things out indefinitely. Uh, and I, I want people to feel interested. I want them to feel encouraged and excited about the Bible study. So if uh, I feel like I'm losing interest, I may try to switch it up a little bit for a couple weeks and get back into where we were. Uh, and I try to go verse by verse as, as much as I can. But some of these passages you could spend weeks in literally just on a couple of passages. So if we get to a point you have a question about something I'm teaching, then feel free to raise your hand or um, at the end of the service ask me a question. I'll go back over something and try to explain it as best as I can. If you heard me say many times before, I say again tonight, I don't know everything. Uh, nobody does. No preacher does. No Bible teacher does. Uh, but I love to study. I love the Word of God. And so if you have a question, then I'll certainly try to entertain it and answer it as best as I can. And uh, also be in prayer for tomorrow night. I'll be doing a, it's sort of a live stream. They call it Zoom. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But it's like FaceTime live streaming with a group. And I'll be doing that, uh, speaking to a lot of younger preachers tomorrow. So be in prayer for that as well. Uh, tomorrow night, I believe, at 7 o'clock. Uh, but also, um, let's remember our services and our, our church and our prayers as we go to the Lord tonight before we begin our study out of Revelation chapter number 2. So let's go to the Lord in prayer at this time and ask God's blessing on our Bible study. Lord, I'm so blessed and thankful to be back in your house again this Wednesday night. And Lord, as I reflect on all that we've been through the past, Lord, I think someone counted something like 50 days, 60 days, something like that, Lord. It's been a... It uh, seemed like a, a long time that we've been out of our church facilities and not been able to worship as what we call normally. Uh, and Lord, we've, we've enjoyed, uh, in spite of the midst of all the turbulent times that we've been in, we've been able to enjoy the fellowship online together and the parking lot services and all that you've been able to do. Lord, we just want to thank you and give you the praise and the honor and the glory that you so rightly deserve tonight. Lord, none of it's possible without your help. And Lord, I, I can't teach tonight without your help. And we can't uh, study the Bible tonight without your help. And Father, we need your help to lift our spirit when we sing together. And we need your help, Lord, as we get ready to pray together at the end of the service. And for one another's needs and the needs of our church and our nation. But Lord, we just pray tonight that you might be in the center of this service. Father, that all things might be uh, to your glorification. And Lord, that you might teach us and instruct us in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the freedoms that we have that we so often take for granted. To be able to come in here tonight and worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, uh, we just pray now that you'd bless this time of study as you promised to do. For we ask it in Jesus' name. And for your sake alone. Amen and amen. So, Revelation chapter 2, Sunday night, we were... Uh, sort of wrapping up this chapter and uh, we had got through the uh, I believe all the way through Thyatira 
And we had talked about uh, Thyatira being a lax church. We talked about it being uh, about from 500 A.D. to 1500, or I'm sorry, about 1200 uh, A.D. And uh, it was a church that's name meant odor of affliction. It was during this time that, uh, that the church suffered some of the worst persecution and martyrdom in the history of the New Testament church. I keep mentioning a, a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I've got a, uh, one of the copies from my office here tonight. Uh, this is just an old paperback copy you can get for just a few dollars online uh, anywhere Christian books I believe are sold and uh, real briefly I want to read some of the description on the back of it this is by James Miller Dodds uh, uh, and he writes this he says after the Bible itself no book so profoundly influenced early Protestant sentiment as the book of martyrs even in our own time it is still a living force it is more than a record of persecution it is an arsenal of controversy, a storehouse of romance, as well as a source of edification. Uh, Douglas Campbell, the Puritan in Holland, England, in America, wrote and said, when, our, when one recollects that up until the appearance of Pilgrim's Progress, I'm sure you've heard of that book, movies have been made about Pilgrim's Progress, the common people had almost, had almost no other reading matter except the Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. We can understand the deep impression that this book produced. And he goes on to talk about that, meaning that uh, back in the days where very few books were in print, other than the Bible, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs was uh, a staple in every Christian home because it told a lot of the stories that we're reading about. At least briefly, it's talking about the martyrdom of the church during that time. We read about a man back in chapter number 2 and. Verse number 13, by the name of Antipas. Antipas was, the Bible says, my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And uh, the, we don't have any biblical record about the death of Antipas. But historically, it tells us that he was a contemporary of John. And, uh, and that we're reading about the writing of John here. And that so he sat at the feet of John and learned at the feet of John and was martyred for his faith. Uh, one of the earliest martyrs and tradition says that he was martyred by being placed inside of a dead cow and sewn up inside of the cow while or a bull I should say while it was uh, roasted over a fire uh, a very horrific death can you imagine such a horrific death and while on trial uh, they asked him to recant his faith and of course he refused to do so and the famous words you may have heard before was said, they looked at Antipas and said uh, these words. They said, do you not know, Antipas, that the world is against you? And Antipas said boldly, he said, then I'm against the whole world. And that line has been carried out throughout the Protestant Reformation and so many other uh, uh, you know, words of encouragement throughout the centuries uh, from that faithful man of God that the Bible records of his martyrdom there in chapter number two. Well, we read a lot about that throughout these chapters. So I would encourage you, if, uh, if you feel led so to do, to get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it takes you kind of chronologically uh, through the persecution of the early church so you know what we've gone through to get to where we are here tonight. So we wrapped up talking about this church and about Jezebel and 1 Kings 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. We're speaking about her uh, and, uh, and about it this being a, a spiritual not a physical, but spiritual uh, whoredoms, bringing all these uh, religions together in a false worship, in a false thing that God was against. And God gives them a great 
encouragement about the, the white stone and a new name written in verse 17 uh, and uh, in verse 18 and then beyond with I retire. God also talks about the blessing that he'll give to them. He'll give to them the morning star, he says in verse 28. Each of these churches, it seems like God has something special in store for them. Uh, and I have no doubt that as, if we'll be faithful to the Lord and when we stand before him, we'll receive the same thing. Uh, back in chapter 2, verse 10, let me go backwards there a little bit, though. And it talks about the martyrdom uh, of 10 days. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, you'll be, Some of you will be tried for, in prison that you may be tried and have tribulation 10 days. And Aluna mentioned he never said nothing about that. Well, that's why I'm saying you can go on and on about all of this tonight and not get a whole lot of anywhere. Uh, but the, the 10 days, they say traditionally, was uh, the average time frame of imprisonment before execution. And they gave you 10 days to be imprisoned, to either uh, recant your faith or to be executed. And so all of those that were going through what they went through, they had literally a price on their head for just believing what you and I believe tonight in our faith in Jesus Christ that we take so often for granted. And so we come to uh, uh, the end of chapter number two and then chapter number three begins the church at Sardis. And under the angel of the church, verse 1 of chapter 3, in Sardis, write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found, found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Verse 4, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So we now come to Sardis. And as I mentioned Sunday night, Sardis means red ones, red ones. And uh, it's typified by another time of martyrdom and bloodshed. Uh, you've probably heard about periods in history like the Spanish Inquisition uh, or St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, uh, where the Pope would give medals during this time. Can you imagine such a thing? to Catholics who killed Protestants, Catholics who killed unarmed Protestants simply because they refused to accept mass, because they refused infant baptism, because they wanted the word of God for their own self, rather to be, than being told what the Bible taught, they wanted to be able to read it for themselves, and they rejected a lot of these things. If you know the story of Martin Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther back, I believe, was the 1500s. Uh, I've actually stood at the privilege of standing where Martin Luther stood on trial in Worms, Germany. And uh, he was one of the, the first of the reformers that, that stood against the system and wrote on Halloween Day the 95 Thesis that he nailed at the door of Wittenberg Church, Wittenberg Castle. And he put it there on the door, 95 things or arguments that he had against what he was taught as a priest in training. And he studied the book of Romans and he realized the just shall live by faith plus nothing. And those things started to, to weigh heavily upon his mind and goes contrary to what he was being trained and taught. And so he uh, had a price on his head as he fled and, 
and tried to, uh, uh, I believe it was uh, in Wittenberg, where he went up into the castle and tried to translate the Bible feverishly into the common man's language in the German language instead of in Latin. And there's inkwells on the, the, the castle walls that are still there where he was held up in that room uh, in hiding, trying to translate the New Testament into the common people's language so they could have the Bible for themselves, something we take for granted every day. And on the wall are still stained blots where he literally felt like the devil was in the room there trying to persecute him and, and torment his way of thinking and his thoughts and tempt him. And he would take those inkwells and throw it in an act of frustration at the wall, trying to hit the devil with the inkwell and, uh, until he got the Bible into the people's hands. And so we are products of a lot of these stories that to you may and others may sound uninteresting or, or boring, but they fought to get us what we have today. Uh, we see all these protests going on where now they turn into riots, but the protests, that's what the word Protestant means. It means to protest. We are a product of, of protesting and uh, where they protested what they were being taught. Medals were literally given out to those that would go and kill Christians that thought the way you and I think tonight because uh, we or they didn't believe the same thing that the state church system was being taught. And so it happened a lot during this time. And again, remember, I'm talking about uh, historically and prophetically uh, about what happened during these church ages, although we understand that Sardis was an actual church during the time of John, as he's writing, that literally lived and existed and faced a lot of the things that we're reading about as well. Uh, this period runs, I, I mentioned Sunday, I'll not write it back up here, but about uh, AD 1000 up until the Middle Ages or the middle of the Dark Ages, I should say. Uh, verse number one of chapter number three, he speaks about it as a dead church. He said, I know thy works that thou hast the name that thou livest and art dead. Uh, I want you to understand again tonight that we are a living organism, not an organization. Uh, just because you put a steeple on the roof of a building doesn't make it a church. Uh, just because you sing songs inside or have a preacher doesn't mean it's a church. Uh, it might be a, a church as far as the world's concerned, but it uh, doesn't mean it's a living thing. The Spirit of God is what makes those inside the building come alive. And so they had a name that they were living and they were dead. Kind of like a chicken with its head cut off out on the farm. They're, they're full of activities and movements and and all of those things, but it's just uh, reflexes. It's not true movement of God. That's what you're seeing in churches tonight. And that's just my honest opinion, but I, I've been around enough to know and seen enough and heard enough to know. Uh, people think, well, if I just do more things, more things, more things, it means that I'm alive. Not necessarily. Not if those things don't bring glory and honor to God. Not if those things are not centered around the word of God. Not if those things are not to teach the truths of scripture. Not if they're not trying to win people to the Lord Jesus Christ and things of that nature. Uh, the seven stars goes back to chapter number one. And we know that. We've already talked about that. Where the seven stars are the representations of the angels of the seven churches. And remember, the Bible speaks a lot about the works of these churches. Not because they're saved by their works, but they're still to work. We're living in an age. Somebody told me yesterday, in fact, I had somebody that wrote me an email. Not in this church, so in case anybody wonders. Uh, but uh, I don't want people to say, well, I wonder who that was. Well, it's nobody you know. But they went this long speech about how we're under grace, we're under grace, we're under grace. Well, we are. Uh, and their, their whole opinion was because we're under grace, we can do anything and everything we want. 
Well, that's sort of true too. You can do anything you want to do tonight. But there's consequence to what you do. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. The Bible says his sons and his daughters. He, he disciplines his own children. There are consequences. There is the chastisement of the Lord. That when you, Just like if your child got out of line, you correct them. Uh, you get out of line, God's going to correct you if you're a true Christian. Not whom the Lord hates, but whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth. Uh, meaning uh, we say now, God will put a whooping on you. He'll go out and get the switch and take you to the woodshed if he needs to. And, and, and Luna used to do that with our older three especially. She used to get out, out in the woods and uh, uh, going up to the church door and get a switch and take it in with you. You should have seen some of those old ladies look at Luna give her the ugliest looks when she carried that switch in. Well, you know what? I think some kids probably need a little more of that now than less of it. But uh, uh, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved to works. And God still has called us to work. And if we don't work, there's going to be consequences as well. And our works have to bring glory to God. And we're going to receive rewards for our works. Or you're going to lose reward for your works. But he says that the works they were doing, God knows it. He said, but you have a name that you live and aren't dead. There's an Old Testament word, Ichabod. You hear that word and you think about that old Disney cartoon with the frog, Ichabod Crane. Or, uh, or not, not the frog, it was uh, the school teacher. Uh, but uh, Ichabod, and we, we think about that, but Ichabod means the glory of God has departed. And there's many churches like Sardis that were on the verge of God writing, The glory of God has departed out on the door of the church. And I think God's written on the door of our tabernacle, which is our body. Many people, he's written the, on the door of it. Yes, they're saved. Yes, they still have the Holy Spirit. But they no longer allow the Holy Spirit to move and to work in their life. And their works are no longer glorifying God. And it's just like God put Nicobot across the door of their heart. They're alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. In verse number 2, he says to be watchful. And strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. For I have not find thou, found thy works uh, perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I'll come on thee as a thief. And thou shalt not know at what hour I will come upon thee. Uh, in verse number 2 and 3, he talks about his coming as a thief. Look in chapter 16 of Revelation. Chapter 16 and verse 15. Chapter 16 and verse 15. God uses this analogy in quite a few places of his return as a thief. And verse number 15 of Revelation 16. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Which we also read about the garments in uh, the church of Sardis in verse number 3 and 4 and 5. And he talks about that similarly in verse 15 of chapter 16. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, Matthew chapter 25, there's an illustration there of Jesus' return as a thief in the night. Uh, go back to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You're in Revelation, you're not too far away from the book of Thessalonians. Go back to the left. If you've hit Timothy, you're almost there. Keep going. You're going to hit the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 5. There's only five chapters in that book. Chapter number 5 and verse number 4. Speaking about the day of the Lord, the return of the Lord, in verse number 1 and verse number 2 of chapter number 5. In verse number 3, uh, well, verse number 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. 
For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, and that they should overtake you as a thief. But you are the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. And he goes on to talk about the night versus the day. And it's not just physical night, it's spiritual night. Uh, we're to be of the day, we're to be awake, we're to be alert, we're to be active. But he says that his coming is like a thief in the night. Well, we know that the Lord didn't return at this time in chapter number three, but they lived as each of these churches in such a way that they anticipated the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ at any given moment. And so he gives us that comparison of his coming as a thief in the night. But then in verse number four, he talks about uh, those that had a few names in Sardis within the church that did not defile their garments. Now tonight, your physical garments are what you're wearing. That's common sense. And you know that. Uh, but the Bible also speaks about spiritual clothing, spiritual garments. Uh, you can't see it right now, but you just see my flesh. My flesh is covered with clothing and so is yours. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible says before that they were naked and were not ashamed. But when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, all of a sudden they could see things in a, in a lost and in a wicked and a sinful manner. Uh, their innocence is now lost. A young child, and I'm not talking about a teenager or even like a child, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, but a, you know, a, a, a child that can just walk or a child that's, you know, two years old, run around the house naked and don't even think about it. Don't blink. It doesn't know it's naked. It'll run around the house. In fact, everybody laughs. Well, they won't be laughing that much if you're doing that at your age or mine tonight. And it's an innocence. It's an, you know, they don't know what they're doing. If they... You know, they run away from their diapers. They're being changed or something. And everybody laughs about it. That's Adam and Eve in the garden. They're like little children. But when they sin, now they know their eyes are open and they're naked and ashamed. And they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, remember. Thank goodness it wasn't poison ivy or po poison oak. And it's a picture of the works of religion trying to cover sin. Uh, you cannot cover your nakedness before God. Because God sees past the clothing. God sees past the outward veneer, the outside. That's why he spoke to those Pharisees and, and the, the Sadducees and those that were there, the lawyers of his day. Jesus said, he says, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. He said, you're like white pillars or white monuments and, and uh, you know, tombstones. He said that outwardly appear righteous unto men, but inwardly where the truth is are full of dead men's bones. And so you're not going to be able to cover and hide that from God. And so in that story of Adam and Eve, God clothed them. And, and we typically and traditionally believe that God killed a lamb and covered them with those coats of an innocent lamb to cover their nakedness in the Garden of Eden. Well, we're also covered, the Bible says, with the garment of salvation. We're going to be covered one day with the robe of righteousness. Uh, the Bible speaks about in Revelation later on, the fine linen of the saints. Uh, the Bible says that the church is to be presented unto Jesus Christ like a bride adorned for her husband. And that you're not to have any wrinkle or spot or any such thing. Why a bride on her wedding day wants to wear her very best and look her very best. And a bride on her wedding day typically, now nowadays may be different, but typically, you know, wears white. And tries to look as clean and pure and, and, and holy as, as possible. And, 
Uh, she wouldn't dare come into a, a church for her wedding with stains and, you know, dirt and, and smears all over her wedding garment. And yet the Bible says that our, our works that we do is, is through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's like covering us with a garment and we're washing our garments in the blood of Jesus Christ. Tide isn't the only stain lifter. The blood of Jesus Christ can lift the stain of sin tonight. Amen. And he can cleanse you and make you white. The Bible says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And so he says that they have some garments there. And they can walk with me in white, in verse number four, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I'll not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Uh, so many scriptures about the white robes that are there. Um, I'm not going to take time to give you all those references tonight, but uh, I've got a message I'll preach on it sometime about the garments of salvation. And how our garments are to be white before the Lord. And that's what he's talking about. It wasn't their physical clothing. It's their spiritual covering. That they'd not be ashamed when they stand before the Lord. And they'd be clothed spiritually before the Lord. Alright, he, he says in verse number 5. He said, uh, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. A lot of people use this verse as a proof text that you can lose your salvation. And sometimes you'll talk to someone, they'll say, well, the Bible says that if, you know, you don't do A, B, C, or D, that God will blot out your name. He'll blot out your name. He'll blot out your name. Real quickly tonight, I personally believe that everyone's name, this is my opinion. I'm not going to teach this 100% doctrinally so, but the way I read it over and over again in the Bible, I tend to believe that everyone's name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. I think the moment you're born, everyone's name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Just like a phone book. Their name's there. But if they don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he blots their name out of the book of life. Does that make sense tonight? Uh, it's like I said, a phone book full of names, alphabetical names and whatever there. I don't know if it's going to be alphabetical, but the Bible says at the end of Revelation, the books will be open and the book of life will be open. And the Bible says in those names that are not found written in the book of life. Why? Because they've been blotted out. Their name was there and then it was blotted out. Uh, God's not in heaven with uh, a whiteout, you know, uh, where he's just, every time you get right, he writes your name down and then you do something wrong and he erases it and puts white out over it. And then you do something right and he writes it back in and you do something wrong, you thought a thought, oh, he's got to erase it again and take that back out. I believe if your name's in there and you trusted the blood of Jesus Christ, you have nothing to worry about tonight. Your name's in the book of life. If you read this, it's not saying what people are telling us. They're saying that that's proof that your name can be blotted out. He doesn't say he will. He said he'll not. Look at what he says again. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. He didn't say he would. He says he'll not. That is a great proof text that you're not going to be blotted out. You don't have to worry about it. In fact, God says he'll confess your name. Uh, Jesus said he'll confess your name before his father in heaven. What a promise tonight. I mean, Trump, I'm just going to, whether you like him or not, Trump doesn't know who Ben Pierce is. He don't know. There's not any really movie stars. I've talked to a few over the years, but none that probably would know who Ben Pierce is. But even if they did, that's not a big, big deal. Now, I've got a lot of friends that are uh, well-known preachers or, uh, you know, singers that, that would know who I am. 
But that's, that's not a big deal. But think tonight, much bigger than any celebrity you like or know. Any professional athlete or anybody like that you know. The Lord Jesus Christ knows who you are tonight. What an encouragement to know that God knows you by name. The very hairs of your head are numbered tonight. He knows all about you. He knows you before you were ever even born. He knew where you'd be tonight. He knows what you'd go through. He knows your life. He knows your past, your present. He knows your end. He knows your appointed time. Everything about you. And he'll confess your name. What an encouragement. I, I can't think of anything I'd rather want in life more than to know Jesus Christ would stand before uh, our Heavenly Father and say, Ben Pierce is my child. You see him down there? That's my child. I mean, to hear him one day say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. There is nothing I think you could ever hear more or greater or more powerful than that phrase tonight. And so that's what he says in verse number five. In verse number six, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Meaning, you've got an ear, if you can hear it, you better listen, you better pay attention. Now, you also, I want you to notice tonight, how many times... Does he say repent to these churches? And we're, we're just about done with chapter 3. But notice he says in verse number 3, repent. Notice back in chapter number 2, he says in verse 22, repent. In verse 21, repent. Notice how he says in, in verse number 16 of chapter 2, repent. Notice in verse number 5 of chapter 2, repent. Uh, over and over again, he says repent, repent, repent. In fact, in chapter number 3, in verse number 19, repent, repent. This is a message to the church. As I was studying this, I thought to myself, if there's any message that's not being preached tonight in our churches, it's that message right there. Our churches are not being told anything about sin, anything about uh, forgiveness of sin, anything about repentance. And yet God says in order to have a right relationship... It requires repent, repent, repent. When he talks to these churches, he commends them for the good, but he warns them from the, for the bad. And he says, repent. Yes, he loves them. Yes, he loves us tonight. But he loves us and wants to forgive us, but it's up to us to repent before he'll ever forgive us. And Christians tonight, I think, take for granted that they're just forgiven. They don't have anything to repent from. You've still got to repent even after you're saved. You want to have a right relationship with God. And verse number seven, and the unto the angel, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will, uh, 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 behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept thy, the word of my patience. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I'll come quickly. Hold thou fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. And I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. 
We've talked about this before. Philadelphia means brotherly love. And it's this period of time of the Philadelphia church age that lasts somewhere around 1500 to 1900. If you're looking at the historical uh, side of things, we know the church literally existed in the first century. But I'm talking about the prophetic side of things as we look at in church history. This would parallel this time of about the 1500s to the, the, the early 1900s. Philadelphia means brotherly love, just like the city in the United States called Philadelphia. And they call it, that's their motto, the city of brotherly love. It's the greatest period of church history for the true body of Christ when it comes to revivals. When it comes to what the, uh, you may have heard of the great awakening in America's history or in, even in Europe. It's spread throughout Europe. Some of the great revivals, the Welsh revival, the, the, the you know, you name those, those great events that took place. Uh, under some, especially the, towards the 1700s and early 1800s, you had men like Jonathan Edwards, uh, who wrote the most famous message ever preached in America's history. Uh, it used to be in all the textbooks and English literature, and I think they've started to take it out in recent years, but a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards would preach that message uh, and, and almost read it out like a script. Was very unemotional as he read it. Stood behind one spot in the podium. But the message centers in the hands of an angry God was about hell and about the coming I can assure you in 2020, no message about sin or hell would be the most famous popular message in America right now. Uh, the message in America right now everybody wants is just, you know, feel good and you're good and I'm good and we're all good and everybody's good kind of a thing. But it was a message of repentance. It was a message of judgment. They said when he preached that message, people literally in the middle of the message would scream out in fear of hell and the terrors of hell. And would fall down in the aisles while he would preach and would grab hold of the pillars in those places where he would preach and hold on to it and scream for salvation and scream for everlasting life. Now remember, that was the day before Hollywood and television and movies that now doesn't scare people. Nothing scares people anymore. Nothing scares people. Uh, my parents were talking about going to the movies and watching like, remember, uh, you've seen probably the old black and white movie, the, the Swamp Thing, which is comical now to watch it. Or The Blob. You ever seen The Blob? Or the, you know, the Night of the Living Dead or something like that. And, and people were screaming at the theaters for these movies. And now we look at it, Frankenstein scared people silly. Now we look at it almost like comedy. Because now nothing scares people anymore. But back in those days, people got their entertainment. Not from Hollywood. It didn't exist. They got it from the pulpit and from the Word of God. And they got the, uh, you know, the, their imaginations were sparked by the stories of Scripture and the stories of the Bible that were painted in those word pictures of the Bible. It was during that time where you had men like George Whitfield who would preach such a powerful way in America's history that uh, 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 Benjamin Franklin, who as far as we know was not converted, not a born-again Christian, and yet Benjamin Franklin said that he could hear on a clear day he could, hear, uh, uh, he could hear George Whitfield preach clearly and easily from over a mile away. Can you imagine? I'm in here right now. My voice is trying to carry without any microphone or anything. And I'll probably go home like I normally do anytime I preach horse for a day or so. And then I, that's just the nature of things. But uh, they had no such, 
you know, the technology back in those days. They said that uh, when some of those preachers like George Whitfield would preach, they said he would literally sprinkle the congregation, the first couple of pews, with his blood from his vocal cords. Those were men. Those were powerful men. But when they preached, it turned the nation upside down. It shook America and England uh, uh, in one hand and another hand back to God. The greatest missionary movements took place in those times. I mean, the greatest missionaries that have ever lived were during those times. The greatest preaching services and church starts and all of those things happened during this age that was there. This is the only church of the seven that is not told to repent. God doesn't tell this church to repent. As I said, each one was told, repent, 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 repent. Maybe this church had something to repent from, but there's nothing that the Lord condemns them to the point where he tells them to repent. It's also called the church of the open door. It's interesting. This church has an open door. And the open door is a mission movement. And remember, we've talked about how symbolism in the Bible is important. And uh, don't take things uh, literally that should be taken figuratively. But take everything literally until it can't be taken literally. And then pray about taking it figuratively. I mean, obviously, when we think about a door... We don't think about something that, that a, a church is not a door. You don't have hinges tonight. And you don't have a doorknob tonight. You're not in a door frame tonight. And yet Jesus said, I am the door. I'm the door to the sheepfold. He said, you climb up some other way, you're a thief and a robber. Well, I want you to notice this church is the church of the open door. They had such an open door that the gospel is spreading. It's spreading like wildfire. There's persecution, but not to the point. Not to the extent of Sardis, not to the extent of Thyatira, not to the extent of these other places. Philadelphia, it's like the door is wide open. But the closest thing I can compare it to tonight is when communism fell in Russia back in the late 80s into the early 90s. Now, Luna will tell you, there were, uh, we kind of get a little frustrated sometimes. We'll see all these mission brochures and stuff, and they'll talk about the country where she's from as an unreached people group. And, they had a church there for, what would y'all celebrate? How many years? Just a few years ago. Over a hundred? A hundred years. A Baptist church was there even under communism. So you had Christians there. Now they didn't have the freedoms we had and things like that, but Christians were there. Uh, her family has, uh, she's got grandparents and others that were uh, sent to the gulags and sent to prison camps in Siberia and other places simply because they were Christians under communism. But yet there were Christians still there. But when communism collapsed and the Iron Curtain fell and all of that that happened there, all of a sudden, even though there were already Christians, now you had the open door to the gospel just flooding Russia. I mean, now you, I remember walking down Red Square and thinking to myself in 1994, I was one of only a few thousand Americans that had ever been up to that point that had walked down Red Square. It was a forbidden place. You couldn't just go to Moscow before that. And it's kind of an interesting and an odd thought to think you're in a place where, uh, where persecution and where uh, Americans and where the gospel was not freely received. And so they had an open door. Bibles were just being flooded into that place. And, and, and the gospel's being preached. And missionaries are coming. And then that door gradually began to close. And I'm not going to say tonight the door there is completely closed, but it's nowhere near as open as it once was. And any Russian will tell you that. It's not like it once was. 
And now they're cracking down on it, especially where Luna's from. The Muslims have taken over and they're persecuting the Christians. So the gospel can't freely get out like it once was. It's just like a door that opens and then it shuts quickly. Philadelphia had an open door. And so the gospel spreading and going near and far throughout the world. And then the door is beginning to shut. It's the church of an open door, but there's also a church of a shut door. And it's the, the church we're going to look at in just a moment. And that's the church of Laodicea. Their church, that church no longer is trying to even keep the door open. It's shut. But Philadelphia has it and it's open. And he says it to them, he said uh, to this church, he says, thou hast kept my word. It's during this time where the gospel really has been preached, but the Bible is being translated for the first time in 2,000 years. The common man and woman and young person could read the Bible and own a copy of the Bible for themselves. We have the Tyndale Bible. And I'm talking about in English tonight. The Tyndale Bible, which was translated in 1534. Some of these men, by the way, even though the Bible was named after them, the first English Bibles, uh, they suffered persecution, were imprisoned, and were, were burned at the stake. And some of them, years later, their bones were dug back up again, and the Catholic Church burnt their bones again to ashes and scattered their, their ashes on the river because they hated them so bad for getting the Bible in the common man's language. Uh, the Coverdale Bible, the Coverdale Bible, was translated in 1535. Uh, Miles Coverdale. And a lot of great stories about these men. There's a Bible called the Great Bible. And it's called that because of its size. But it was translated in 1539. You had a Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was in 1560. Then you had the Bishop's Bible. And the Bishop's Bible was almost identical to the King James Bible in 1568. And then, of course, the authorized Bible was translated in 1611. And with one, two, three, four, five, six translations of the Bible, and these weren't full translations. Some of them were, were partial. Some of them were just adding on to the one before them when they weren't able to finish it. And most of these, the words weren't changed. Verses weren't changed. Doctrines weren't changed. But some of these were translated using only Latin. Very limited resources in the Greek or, or Hebrew manuscripts or things like that that eventually came along. And uh, from 1611, that Bible has been the stable Bible and the number one bestseller for over 400 years. And it's not even getting close to any other translation from that time. But now the common man and the common person, the average person in the pew could have the Bible before themselves. One of the Bibles that was uh, translated, like the, the uh, great Bible during this time had a chain on it, and it was chained to the pulpit because in those churches, only one Bible per church could be printed. The printing press that was uh, uh, printed, the first thing on the printing press when it was invented in Germany, uh, the Gutenberg Press, was a page of the Bible. Imagine that. The very first thing ever printed on a printing press was a page of the Bible. And so one Bible per church and now we've got Bibles. I collect them. I mean, I do. Linda will tell you. I, I collect Bibles and I always have another Bible. I've got Bibles stacked up and, and stored for, uh, for a long time to come and always want another one. Uh, but now we take that for granted because there was a time where you couldn't just own a Bible for yourself. 
It was chained to the pulpit because people were going in there trying to steal the Bible because they wanted to take it home, but you'd have to wheelbarrow the thing. I mean, I've got Bible pages in my office from 1600s, and I've got them from the 1500s. That uh, one page is bigger than Webster's Dictionary. And those pages were huge. The Bibles were huge. But now we've got it. I've got it on my cell phone. We take all that for granted. It helped that happened during this time of open door. They kept his word, Jesus said. No other church is this said about than this church. They kept the word. They were careful to get the Bible into the language of the people. Now, I'm not going to take any more time to get into that tonight. I'll save it for maybe some kind of Bible uh, history type lesson or something at, or sermon at some other point. But what good would it do for you or me tonight if the Bible that you've got was written in Latin? Unless you spoke Latin. Now, you have to keep in mind, too, that the average person didn't even have, a, a, like we would call, a regular education. They didn't have a grade school education. They certainly didn't have a high school education. And the average person probably couldn't even eat, read or write on their own back in those days. But even if you could read or write, you certainly didn't speak Latin because Latin was reserved for only the higher class of society. And especially when it came to the religious crowd, the religious community, it was reserved for the priest and for the religious leaders. So you didn't have the Bible for yourself. And you, even if you did, you couldn't read it for yourself. It would be like tonight if the Bible was just in Greek to you. Like we say, it's Greek to me. Well, it certainly would be unless you, you read or write Greek. And Greek's a dead language. Modern Greek is not the same thing as ancient Koine Greek which or, or biblical Greek. Uh, modern Greek is similar, but it's uh, ancient Greek, biblical Greek, Koine Greek is a dead language. People don't speak that Greek anymore. And so to get the Bible into the language of, of the English speaking people or to get the Bible in the language of the German people in Europe was a major event that shook the church to its core. Now, why did it shake the church to its core at that time? When I say the church, I'm not talking about what we think of the church. I'm talking about the church that ruled and dominated Europe. Uh, it shook it to the core because the man or woman that now could read the Bible for themselves could study it for themselves, understand it for themselves, learn it for themselves, and challenge what they're being taught. See, tonight, if I had the Bible and you didn't have the Bible uh, in your language, in English, and I had it in Latin tonight, and I'm the only person in here that speaks Latin, then how do you know what I'm up here saying is true? How could you prove what I'm saying is true or not true? I mean, you couldn't. So you have to take my word for it. That goes back to what we talked about earlier, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That's what that was all about. It was, it was a class society inside the church to where the religious leaders controlled the common man or woman so that they oppressed them through education and through knowledge so that you had to learn things through them or you didn't learn anything at all. That sets them up as the authority and if they're the authority, you don't question the authority. So you have to fall in line like little ducks in a row. And finally enough of that was uh, enough was enough and it brought about the Protestant Reformation. It brought about eventually the Great Awakening throughout America. The greatest revivals in history happened during this age. He talks about in verse number uh, nine, I believe it is. He says here, the synagogue of Satan and the synagogue of Satan is the same thing that he spoke about in chapter number two and verse number nine. I'm going to skip that tonight because when we get over later on in Revelation, there's a lot of scripture that deals with Satan's seat. 
Contrary to, to, to opinion tonight and what's being taught tonight, Satan is not bound in hell. Satan doesn't just live down in a little dark, fiery little pit like you see in the cartoons. He doesn't have little horns on his head like this, and he's red and got, you know, a goatee, and he's got, a, you know, uh, hoofs like, a, like a, a goat, and he's got a pitchfork in his hand, and his tail comes to a sharp point, you know, and he just runs around hell. That's not the devil of the Bible. That's the cartoon image that the world paints. Uh, the devil roams around freely. Jesus looks one day at Simon Peter and said, Simon, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. He said, uh, he said uh, later on, he says that the devil walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In Job 1 and 2, he said, Satan walks to and fro on the earth and up and down in it, and he comes to appear before God. Satan has free course, and we see later on when he appears in Revelation, he comes in the form of a seven-headed dragon. So he does have a place. He does have a throne. He does have a... He, he's behind a lot of the, uh, uh, the religious movement and political movements that's going on in the world today. But we'll get into that at a later time. Verse number 10 of chapter number 3. He says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. He said, I'll keep, keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the world, which he did. That's a, a good evidence for the pre-tribulation rapture, by the way. He didn't say, I'll come after all of this, uh, 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 before it. He said, I, I'm coming. Uh, he said, I will come unless this happens. They lived their life in such a way that they believe he could come at any moment. And he says in verse 11, Behold, I come quickly. Hold thou fast which thou hast in him and take thy crown. And 2 John verse 8, we're, we're just a, a couple of pages away from 2 John, so turn there real quick. Back to the left of 2 John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 2 John just has one chapter in it. Look in verse number 8. And here's a great scripture, a great warning to us tonight that are believers. He says, look to yourselves, verse 8, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Meaning that there are some things... We can earn some things we can get a reward for, and there's some things we can lose. Here's one of the things you can win, and one of the things that you don't want to lose. He says, a crown. As we've said often, there's five crowns mentioned in the Bible particularly. This is one of those crowns. We're going to get those crowns, but we find over in chapter 4 and verse number 10, they're going to cast... All of us are going to cast our crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and give them back to him. But he's still going to reward us with the crown. In chapter number four, we see the word crown several times. We see it throughout these churches. So that, that's one of the rewards and treasures that we're working for in heaven. We come now to the church of the Laodiceans. Let me try to wrap this up in just a couple of minutes. You've heard this preached on no doubt many times before. And I again want to remind us that the church of Laodicea was a literal church with a literal physical address, and yet it's a type of the times, I believe, that we're in tonight. And verse 14, under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art rich, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. 
and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me at my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So he writes, not to the church of Laodicea, but to the church of the Laodiceans. Very interesting. The other six churches, he says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus, not the Ephesians. Uh, uh, in verse 12, the angel of the church in chapter number 2 uh, in Pergamos, not to uh, those that were in Pergamos. He's right, not to the Sardians, but to Sardis. But here it's to the Laodiceans. Something switches, something changes with this last church. He's not just talking about the church as a whole, but the people inside the church with this church. And obviously any church is made up of not just the building, but the people that are inside of it especially. He says, I am the amen. Jesus is the amen. Every time you say amen, you're not only saying so be it, which is what amen means or I agree, but you're also invoking the name of Jesus Christ. He is the amen. He's the faithful. He's the true witness. He's the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. So we see here he gets into a salutation in verse 14. A complaint in verse 15 through 17. His counsel to the church in verse 18. His chastening to the church in verse 19. But then a promise in verses 20 down through verse number 22. Now that word Laodicean. Uh, I mentioned this before, but it's made up of two words. And basically, it's, it, it's broken up into the word laity or laos and diocese. Laity, if, if any of you have any background in other denominations, uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Wesleyan, things like that. The laity, that's the common people. That's the average people in the church. You're the laity. Uh, if you're in the church, you're part of the laity. That's, you know, that's our parish. That's our parishioners. That's the average person is the laity. The diocese are the ones that are kind of the leaders in the church. Uh, these are really Catholic type terms. So they toss it around a lot. They talk about the diocese of this place and the diocese of that place. Uh, and it's the leadership. It's the cardinals. It's the bishops. It's the priests. It's all the different leaders that are there. Well, remember earlier, one of the churches had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, two of them actually, where the, the diocese was over the laity. The diocese, the leaders in the church were saying, we're, we know more than you do. You don't know anything. You're just a common a Christian, a common man or woman. So you're ignorant and we know everything. And God says, this is something that I hate. I hate this class warfare that's being set up within the church where somebody is more important or significant than the other. We're all important tonight. Paul made that clear. We're all members of his body. Every member, just like our body. Everything's not a, a hand. Everything's not a toe. Everything's not an eye. But without all the things working together, you don't have a healthy body. And the same is true of the body of Christ. So God says, I hate that. I don't like this Nicolaitan uh, setup. But with the Laodiceans, something switched to where now the laity is over the diocese. 
And the same thing God hates. It, it, it's the opposite of what was before, but it's still not healthy. And so now we see the leadership of the church is down at the bottom and everybody else is up here. Something else that's related to this name. Laodicea or Laodicean means or has something to do with the rights of the people. The rights of the people. Boy, don't that sound familiar? Don't we have a bill called the Bill of Rights? Aren't we in a nation that that's what it's all about tonight is rights? Don't we hear everybody arguing today and not just because of what's in the news, but I'm talking, you know, years ago. What about women's rights and what about, you know, uh, what about animal rights? Animal rights activists, they call it that. We're in supposedly Pride Month. I always found that kind of unusual because pride in the Bible is always referred to as a sin. So no matter how you get it, God ain't for that. Amen. God ain't for sin. He certainly ain't for pride. So uh, when you call it pride, then you just sin right there. But what about my rights? What about, what about my rights and I, uh, my rights and our rights and our rights? And what's happened with the Laodicean church age, it becomes an age of the rights of the people. And we all love our rights tonight. But we always have to think about our rights in relationship to the word of Almighty God. Because our rights are given to us by our creator. And the word of God is over us tonight. It's not under me. It's not beneath me. It's over me. I'm not the authority. The Bible is the authority. God is the authority. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, is the authority. And what's going on in the church age of the Laodicean is that it's everyone else's rights but God's rights. God has no rights in the church of the Laodicean. How do we know that? Not only in the name of it, but because of the outcome of it. The outcome is this. He said, I, you're a lukewarm church. All these other churches, God has something positive to say about them. He has nothing positive to say about the church of the Laodiceans. He doesn't talk about them enduring hard times or enduring temptation or getting through persecution or holding fast the word of God or, or any of these things with the Laodiceans. He said, listen, I wish you were even cold. It would be better than you're lukewarm. Because cold... Is, is at least God knows where you stand and hot God knows where you stand, but lukewarm is nothing. It's in the middle. It's straddling the fence. The Bible says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. There is no mediocrity with the Lord. There is no, you know, I, I've got one hand in the world and one hand holding hands with God at the same time. No, you've got to love God or love man. And you can't love both simultaneously. And you can't have, you know, you can't worship both simultaneously. But that's what's happened in Laodicea. Because of it, it's the only church that, to put it in modern terms, makes Jesus sick. He said, I'm going to spit you out. That's what spew means. It means to throw up if you really want to know what it means. He said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Just like if you've ever eaten something, as soon as you taste it, you went, Ugh, I didn't like that. That's what God's saying. Can you imagine the Lord speaking? You say, Brother Ben, that's irreverent. That's what the Lord said, not me. And he said, I'm ready to spit you out. I'd rather you be on fire for me or ice cold, but because you're kind of in the middle. That's the age we're in. Heaping up teachers and themselves having itching ears, turning away from the truth unto fable, not enduring sound doctrine, having a form of godliness, but in denying the power thereof. I want church. I want to go to heaven when I die, but don't give me any rules. Don't give me any responsibilities. Don't tell me I have to live a clean life. Don't tell me I've got to live a separated, dedicated life to God. I want to do what I want to do, how I want to do it. Laodicea. 
My rights, God. What about my rights? And God says, but I, I want to give you gold. That's spiritual treasures. And they said, but we've got everything we need. I'm rich and increased with good. Look around us tonight. I'm not saying Mount Springs Baptist Church is the Laodicean church. I, please don't leave here and say that. I've got it on, on record. I'm not saying that. Amen. But I'm trying to make a point. I'm, I'm through with this. But look around. We've got beautiful stained glass windows. You know, Philadelphia didn't have that. Sardis didn't have that. Pergamos didn't have that. Thyatira didn't have that. We've got nice, comfortable, padded pews. Do any of y'all remember the day where there was no padding on the pews? I remember those days. Uh, we've got nice, padded pews. We've got carpet, cushiony carpet. We've got electricity. We've got sound systems. We've got pianos and organs. We've got, we've got computers. We've got security cameras. We've got, hey, indoor plumbing. Ain't that awesome? And unless you've ever been in churches that didn't have it, you don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to appreciating it. Air conditioning, all this stuff, heating in the winter. And praise God for it. But here's human nature. When you don't have a lot, it seems to pull you closer to God. And when you have a lot, it pulls you further away from God. When the church had nothing but God. When they didn't have fancy buildings, when they didn't have nice rooms and facilities, when they were persecuted, when they had all their faith is all they had, they were on fire for God. But when they don't have to worry about, you know, anything else, they lose that closeness with God. That's what happens to Laodicea. They think their wealth and their success and their prosperity equals godliness. But remember the words of Paul. They that suppose that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. More never, or I shouldn't say never, but usually more does not equal more spiritual. Just because a church has more money or more facilities or more people doesn't mean it has more of God. It could mean it has less of God. Certainly the case with the Laodiceans. Now he tells the church... That they're naked. That's spiritual nakedness. And he wants to give them clothing. That's spiritual clothing. He wants to anoint their eyes with eyes. Why? Because the Bible says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse number 4. That the devil is the God of this world. Who blinds people. He blinds the minds of them that would believe. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ. Is the image of God should shine unto them. They think they can see. But they're blind as a bat backing in backwards. They're blind. But they, they think they can see. And he said, but you can't really see. There's some people that are blind that can see better than you and I tonight. And there's people that can see that are blind according to God. He tells them to repent. There's no indication that they do. And it's the church that kicks the Lord out. I'll say in closing because in verse number 20 we find that door again. We use this verse to witness to people. And in a lot of evangelism outreach and and the tracks and things like that. And I'm not saying you can't. But it's a good example of taking a verse out of context. I don't really think there's anything wrong with using it. Because the symbolism is certainly still there. But if we want to look at the historical side of it. And the doctrinal side of verses 20 and 21. He's not talking about witnessing and asking Jesus into your heart. He's talking about a church. One door was the church of the open door. This is the church of the shut door. And Jesus is on the outside of the door of the church knocking to come in. 
How did Jesus go from being in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, in the midst of the churches, in the, uh, the midst of the angels of the churches, walking up and down the church, to now he's on the outside of the door knocking, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in unto him and sup with him and he with me. The famous painting I'm sure you've seen before of Jesus standing at the door. I believe it's there, it's like a garden, and Jesus is there in his long robe, his long gown, and he's knocking at the door. When that, they say when that painting, and I forget now the name of the man, man that painted it, but they said when he painted it and, and showed it at the first exhibit that one of the art critics, true story, got him off to the side and said it's a beautiful painting, but you, you left something off. You left a very important detail off your painting. And he said, well, what's that? With all the detail of the painting, he says, you left off the doorknob. I mean, how foolish. You're a painter and you're, you're painting such a beautiful work. And you've made this beautiful portrait of Jesus standing at the door knocking. And you forgot to put the doorknob on there. He said, no, it's not a mistake. It was intentional. And the man said, I don't understand. He said, Jesus only comes in from the inside of the door. There's no doorknob on the outside because he don't force his way in. You have to open the door and let him in. Folks, I don't know what you believe about it tonight, but I believe that to be absolutely true. Jesus don't force his will or way on anybody. You want to accept him, you can accept him. You want to reject him, you can reject him. He wants to be in your heart. He wants to be in the churches. But if the churches don't want him in there, he ain't going to waste five minutes. He'll go find another place to go. That's why he stands at the door knock. But thank God he said, if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and sup with you and, he, and, and him with me. God wants to fellowship. He wants to commune with the churches. My prayer tonight at Mountain Springs Baptist Church is let him in. He's welcome here. He's welcome every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, special service, Sunday school, music, concerts, vacation, Bible school. I don't care what it is. He's welcome here. And he's wanted here. Him that overcometh, he said, I'll grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and sat down with my father at his throne. At the conclusion of this church of the people's rights, boy, it sounds like the time we're in. Chapter 4, we'll get into uh, Sunday night, ushers in heaven opening. There's a transition between the last two chapters that deal with the church to now in chapter number 4, verse number 1. And after this I looked, and behold, the door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet talking with me, and said, Come up hither, and I'll show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I, will, uh, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven and he goes into the description, the next 11 verses of what he sees. And it begins the description of the tribulation that's coming to this world. So those churches are described in great detail, historically, doctrinally, but I also believe spiritually. But then those churches cease to be mentioned. And the emphasis is now going to turn to the events that are going to happen to this world as we know it as the tribulation. And so we'll get into that 